Welcome everyone. Hello, I'm Amy Antonucci welcoming you to our True Tales Live Zoom show on March 29th, 2022. Thanks to all of you watching and listening and especially to those here in our live online audience. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell first person experience stories stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity and help us to bridge differences and build understanding and respect for each other. And we are so happy that you are here with us, even on Zoom. And remember the suggestions for making the most of this online format, since we really feel like storytelling is an exchange between teller and telly. Um, so if you are willing to keep your video on and go ahead and express yourselves, like here, we'll, we'll do a, a quick one here. How about you expect, uh, express happiness, everyone. Awesome, right. So keep it like that, keep going like that. And also to use the chat box, which we'll share with the, the tellers and that you can also put questions in for our Q&A afterwards. Tonight, we bring you Exercising Rights, our annual activism show. We will hear stories from Jezri Marcano-Courtney and Vicki Uditz, and then we will bring you a recording of a story that Arnie Alpert shared for our 2019 activism show. We'll then have the Q&A and a conversation, which Arnie is going to join us for, and we can have some updates on, on what happened next from his story. Uh, Pat Spaulding is our MC tonight, and I'm going to turn it over to her. Please join me in a nice, big, visible welcome to Pat. Hi there, everybody. First up, we have Jezri Marcano-Courtney from New Haven, Connecticut, and she started telling stories in 2015 to heal the pain in her heart, she says. Then the most extraordinary thing happened. Her listeners connected with not only the pain, but also with the joy she shared through these stories. Since then, Jezri has performed stories about her lived experience in such diverse venues as Clinton Arts Council, Artists Standing Strong Together, Elm City Lit Fest, the International Festival of Arts and Ideas, Pour One Out with Ada Cheng, I like that one, and Story City at the Buttonwood Tree. That's a great sounding one too. In tonight's story, Jezri will introduce us to adults who do not want their authority questioned. In particular, her Catholic school experience, she tells us, taught her that nuns can be scarier than God himself. Let's hear more in her story, The Blasphemer. Come on up, Jezri. Thank you, everyone, for uh, everyone at True Tales Live for having me. Um, this is a really wonderful experience. I hope you enjoy this story. Ah, for as long as I could remember my parents telling me stories about being educated in Catholic school, a singular lesson remains. Nuns can be scarier than God himself. And when my parents decide to send me to be educated by the nuns and the lay teachers at St. Brendan's School, they offer me a cautious wisdom, question everything within acceptable reason. In the seventh grade, 
I already have two years experience to prove my parents right. The nuns of St. Brendan's school are scary indeed. And it seems the shorter they are, the easier it is for them to deceive even the blindest eye of the godlike iron fist they use to keep us students in line. Well, one of the scarier nuns at St. Brendan's school is Sister Natalina. And Sister Natalina wears these glasses that have dark tinted lenses that give her the superpower to stop unruly students as she swoops in like a hawk on prey. And then grabbed either by the ear or the collar, the poor soul, the poor unfortunate soul has to join sister in the task of cleaning scuffs out of lovingly waxed floors, which if I can admit openly now is my guilty pleasure because I get to miss classes already in session. Sister also has a name that she uses for students who refuse her, well, I mean, God's will. And that name is basketball head. And a basketball head by definition is a student, a hard-headed student with nothing but air between their ears. Sister Natalina does have her tender spots and she sells back stocks of school fundraiser Kit Kat bars for a dollar each out of the janitor's closet and we lovingly call it the school store. But the scariest thing that I know about Sister Natalina is that she has this need to record everything we do and say on just about a daily basis using this large ass video camera that can be used for making Hollywood movies. It's a couple of months before summer break and this is the time when students are really restless, right? We're ready for summer to begin. And the most restless lot in St. Brendan are the eighth graders because they are beyond ready to graduate. And let me tell you something about the class of 1996. They are a mischievous lot because they manage to successfully plan and execute a prank against Sister Natalina by taking and hiding her beloved video camera. This morning, we enter school to find Sister pacing the hallway stopping only to open the doors of each of the classrooms to look around. Now, most of the students go about the business of getting ready for the school day, but I'm nosy, so I'm watching this strange behavior. And soon I'm joined by other of my seventh grade uh, classmates and a few eighth graders. We stole sister's video camera. That's what one of the eighth graders says to me, almost whispering, wearing a large grin, and I'm speechless. But to tell the truth, I'm also deeply satisfied because I hate that camera. I hate that sister walks around the small campus of our school, filming us doing everything. And what I hate the most is that she doesn't even try to look inconspicuous while doing it. Well, later on that afternoon, 
sister joins uh, my seventh grade class for what we think is Italian language lessons, but it actually turns out to be an unplanned lecture on stealing. Hmm. Now, I've noticed that the eighth graders have become really weird as the day has gone on, despite the fact that I got the tea from a few of them this morning. And also sister has just admitted that she is only coming to speak to us. Huh. My spidey senses are tingling. I am sure of mine and my classmates innocence, but without a way to prove that we did not take sister Natalina's video camera, we find out that we are subject to suspension, probably expulsion, but definitely eternal damnation for lying to sister and lying to God. Sister wears us down with her preaching and then finally she opens the floor for questions and comments and confessions. So I raise my hand. Um, sister, are you sure that you're not going to speak to the eighth graders or any of the classes below us about this incident? Because like, wouldn't it be really nice if the whole school came together to help you find your missing camera? Sister assures us that she's come to the right place for answers. And this forces me to pause and think. And while I'm regrouping, Sister gets us all to stand on our feet and ready, our ready ourselves for inspection. I quickly raise my hand again. Um, sister, how do you know that we're the culprits? And one by one, my classmates begin to agree with me. And this encourages me to continue. Um, uh, and, and sister, um, Will you apologize to us if it turns out that you're wrong? Suddenly, sister's face transforms and the dark tints on her lenses go completely black. Blasphemer! Her outstretched finger reaches into the depth of my soul and I can swear I feel trembling under my feet. Oh crap, I think to myself as my classmates say my thought out loud, get to your knees and pray to God for forgiveness, Sister Natalina commands of us. Well, the very next day, the eighth graders relent and they admit to sister that it was them who pulled the prank and they return her beloved video camera to her unharmed. As for me and my classmates, we receive no kind of apology. But whenever sister sees me in the school hallways, she gives me a subtle nod. Is it because she suddenly respects me and secretly she's proud that I stand up to her for my classmates? No, likely not. But I like to think, it's because Sister Natalina realizes there might just be something more than air between my ears. Thank you. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> that was a scary rendition of Sister 
Um, <laughs> when you when you said bless from her, it's like whoa, we're all shaking in our seats. Uh, questions, commands, confessions. It's not painting a you know a kind picture, <laughs> but looks like you got through your education pretty well, Jezri. I'm she some things that you've kept, and you know that was it was good school on the whole. Yes. Okay, glad to hear it. <laughs> thank you so much for that story. And thank you, guys. Thank you. Next up, we have Vicki Uditz from Burbank, California. And she's performed at theaters and festivals all across the country, including the National Story Test, uh, Festival in Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, the Aspen Laugh, L-A-F-F Festival, she performs frequently at Moth's Story Slams, and her story, Swing Dancing, has aired on the Moth Radio Hour. I'll keep a note of that because I listen to the Moth all the time. Vicki has always considered herself to be a rule follower, someone who defers to authority. But, she adds, democracy only works if you make your voice heard. So let's find out more in her story this is a, an interesting title, Longing for Jail Time. Come on up, Vicki. I had this interview with a 20-something casting director. Let's call her Kimmy. Kimmy casts low-budget science fiction movies shot in Bulgaria, movies like Man with the Screaming Brain. She and I chuckled over some amusing items on my resume from my youth, like the movie where I played Girl in Shower. And then she fixed me with a piercing gaze. And she said, tell me something I don't know about you. Oh, I knew what she was getting at. I was supposed to say something like, oh, right, I can hang glide. Or I can ride a horse bareback. Or I can hit a moving target with a lethal weapon the sorts of things that would come in handy if you are cast in a low budget science fiction movie shooting in Bulgaria. I did not have any of those skills. The only thing I could think to talk about was what I was going to be doing the next day. And so I blurted out, well, um, tomorrow I'm going to be arrested. Excuse me? Um, for civil disobedience, like Gandhi? At that moment, Kimmy appeared to receive an incoming call. It's urgent, she said. I have to take it right away, she said. And she waved me out of her office. Yeah, I knew I was never going to Bulgaria. In the car, I continued the conversation I would have had with Kimmy if she had let me. I often have conversations like this in the car. And I think this is really common among Angelenos because we're alone a lot in our cars, sometimes for hours on a given day. And we are desperate for human contact, real or imaginary. So I said to the imaginary Kimmy, I said, Kimmy, civil disobedience is when you break the law to protest something you think is wrong and you get arrested and hopefully you get in the newspaper and you get on TV and people, people see you, they read about you and they think, oh my gosh, if that person actually got arrested because they care about this issue so much, well, maybe this issue is something I should care about. Yes, I could tell even the imaginary Kimmy was not listening. And this is really unfortunate because civil disobedience is one of the most effective strategies for change ever devised. And I had participated in civil disobedience a couple of times, but I had yet to be arrested. Okay, let, let me explain. The first time that I was almost arrested was in 1987. 
I was part of an anti-nuke group, anti-nuclear weapons, and the head of our group was Eve Ensler, who later became famous for writing the vagina monologues, but at the time she was not famous. So at this time I was living in Manhattan and uh, before dawn, a bunch of people from our group and other groups, like 70 of us all together, we took the ferry from Manhattan over to Staten Island and we tied ourselves to a chain link fence with ribbons and flowers. This fence surrounded the construction site where the Navy was planning on building a port for the battleship Iowa that could carry nuclear weapons. Yes, the Navy was just going to park some nuclear weapons in New York Harbor. <laughs> what could go wrong with that? And so we were protesting and singing. We sang the John Lennon song. All we are saying is give peace a chance. And then the police came and ordered us to disperse. I untied myself and I went home. No, look, because uh, at the time I was acting in television commercials and I was afraid that a company like Procter & Gamble, say, wasn't going to hire me anymore to sell their dishwashing liquid or whatever. If I had a criminal record and this was going to be a felony, it was federal property. But yeah, everybody else went limp. They were carried into the paddy wagons. They were taken to jail. They bonded over the experience. I was so jealous. They were the cool kids. The second time I was almost arrested was in 2012. I was living in Los Angeles by then. I was part of an environmental group. We decided we were gonna block the entrance to the federal building in downtown Los Angeles and demand that Congress pass legislation to fight global warming. It's very theatrical. I played the grim reaper of climate change, skeleton mask, black hood, black cape, cardboard side, and everybody else played humanity in denial. So humanity in denial, like 10 people, they all sat on the sidewalk blocking the entrance, talking, laughing, ignoring me, the grim river of climate change, as I skulked around them. I smote each one of them with my side. They lay down dead on the sidewalk, and then I threw signs on them, famine, blood, disease. The police came and ordered us to disperse and I took off my costume and went home. No, because see, I, I really thought, oh no, I, and I don't want another mother picking up my kid from junior high because I have to help with the homework. I have to get them to play practice. I, just, I really don't feel I have the time to be incarcerated. But everybody else, yes, yes, they were arrested. And once again, I was so jealous. So finally, April, 2017, I was volunteering with a Jewish social action group. And one of the group called me up and said, okay, we're going to have an action. We're going to block the driveway to the ICE detention center in downtown Los Angeles and demand an end to unfair deportations. This is going to be an act of sacred resistance. So we're going to have a bunch of Muslim activists. We're going to have uh, priests, rabbis, and their allies. That would be you. Are you available on such and such a day? And would you be willing to be arrested? I said, yes, I have wanted to be arrested for years. Finally, my kid's away at college. I'm no longer selling dishwashing liquid. I am available. So they, hold, they told me how to prepare. And on the big morning, the morning after I, I met with Kimmy, she of the low budget Bulgarian science fiction movies, on that morning, I prepared, as they told me, um, comfortable clothing, okay, um, sneakers, jeans, sweatshirt, and I only took with me my driver's license and my Metro card because they said, don't bring anything else. Don't bring a house key, no car key, don't come in a car. 
no credit card, no money, no phone. Because when you're booked at the jail, they take all that stuff and you might not get it back or it could be hard to get it back. So just don't bring any of that. So I live in the San Fernando Valley section of Los Angeles and public transit is abysmal. I really don't usually take it, but yes, on this morning, yes, yes. I did the 20 minute walk to that bus stop. I waited an hour for the bus and I got to the train and I got downtown and I walked into the church where we were meeting. There were 300 people in there and the priests were strumming guitars and everybody was singing that Holly Near song. We are a gentle, angry people. And we all marched out of the church and over to ice and we blocked the driveway the driveway where the vans go out to pick up undocumented folks, that same driveway where the vans go back in with terrified people inside. Our group, our organizers had done a terrific job. All the journalists were there with their little notebooks and the guys were there with the big TV cameras on their shoulders from all the major stations. So we made a big circle blocking the driveway, again, very theatrical. And uh, first into the circle came the Muslim activists. They did prayers with us. And they said, be the one that you are waiting for. And then into the center came the rabbis. They were wearing their yarmulkes and prayer shawls. It was the third day of Passover, a time when Jews are reminded of their duty to help those who are captive or oppressed. They did a little bit of a Passover Seder with us with matzah and cups of wine. And then into the center came the priests in all their vestments. And they were carrying buckets of water and white cloths because it was also Monday, Thursday, the day when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. And so these priests washed the feet of people who had lost folks to deportation. And then one of the priests said really loudly, we're here to protest unfair deportations. That was our cue. And so um, those of us who had agreed, uh, we sat down in a circle blocking the driveway. Everyone else stepped back and we, uh, we sat down facing out and we had our arms linked. And we began to sing together in Hebrew. We must build this world from love. Police surrounded our circle. Guns in their holsters, at their waists, at the ready. And I thought, oh, this is not a game. This is not a competition. It's not about me at all. We're here as one to protest something that's fundamentally wrong. The tearing, tearing apart of families, ruining of livelihoods, shattering a lot of lives. One of the officers lifted a bullhorn and he said, I declare this to be an unlawful assembly. I demand all those assembled disperse. If you do not disperse, we have the right to use lethal weapons. We did not disperse. We remained seated. And together we sang, somebody's hurting my brother. It's gone on far too long. Our wrists were zip tied and we, made, we were made to stand and climb into the paddy wagons. And we continued to sing. Somebody's hurting my sister. It's gone on far too long. We won't be silent anymore.
whoa. <laughs> okay. So that was the moment that our story ended. And we're all like, oh, oh, oh. we followed you right into that wagon. And, and uh, geez, Mickey, now you're in jail with the group. That was um, beautifully and poignantly told. And so scarily of the times, um, thank you. Thank you. I'm still kind of hmm, feeling it, as I think many are. Moving right along. Whoops, whoops, whoops. Yeah, okay, I did unmute. <laughs> um, we have uh, Arnie Elford coming up, who lives in Canterbury, New Hampshire still. He spent nearly four decades with the New Hampshire Program for the American Friends Service Committee, where he trained, educated, and supported efforts to promote social justice and peace. Now retired, he writes the Active with the Activists column on the online news journal In-Depth New Hampshire, and has created a website called New Hampshire Radical History at nhradicalhistory.org. Arnie is still on the board of the New Hampshire Coalition to abolish the death penalty. We'll find out more about that in the story he'll tell us tonight, which was pre-recorded uh, in 2019. And so now let's go to that previously recorded introduction to his story, where we'll learn a little bit more about Arnie, and then we will hear his tale, his true tale. Come on up, Arnie. We have Arnie Elpert from Canterbury, New Hampshire. He is co-director of the American Friends Service Committee's New Hampshire program. He is co-host of Statehouse Watch, a radio show on WNHNLP in Concord, and also a member of the Board of New Hampshire Coalition to abolish the death penalty. Now, um, just last Thursday, as you may be aware, by a single vote, the New Hampshire House overrode the governor's veto of the death penalty repeal bill. The Senate will now vote on Thursday. So this is really happening. <laughs> and Arnie is going to tell us all about that, along with how his own perspective was formed and what he has learned over the course of this decades-long campaign to end the death penalty in New Hampshire. In his story, Bending Toward Justice. Come on up, Arnie. That's gonna, gonna not do it, so anyway. So if you're telling a fairy tale, it's easy to start with, all right, and then it probably ends with, they live happily ever after. Now if you're telling a true tale, it's a little harder to figure out where it starts, especially when they tell you that you've only got 10 minutes. All right. So I'm going to start this story. I think the story starts in 1985 when I was with a group of Quakers. Now, do people know anything about Quakers? If you know anything about Quakers, you probably know that Quakers are against killing. Yep. Right? All right. So when there was a proposal made to change the state's official method of execution 
from death by hanging to death by lethal, lethal injection, the Quakers got together and they said, this is the wrong discussion to be having. We shouldn't be talking about how to kill people. We should be talking about not killing people. So the Quakers wrote a letter, which they call a minute. Uh, and I went with Marion Baker, uh, a member of the Ware Friends Meeting and who was the clerk of the All New Hampshire Friends Gathering. And we went and delivered it at a public hearing uh, at the State House and basically said, instead of discussing this, you should talk about ending the death penalty. So I continued to follow the issue uh, over the next decade or so as, you know, once in a while there would be bills that would, would affect the issue. But it really wasn't until 1997 and wait, maybe that's when the story starts. Because in 1997, uh, in the late summer and early fall, there was a series of three different murders or multiple murders that took place that got the state's attention. One of them was the rape and murder of an eight-year-old girl. One of them was the murder of a police officer. And another one was a guy who went on a killing spree. And by the time it was over, he was dead. But also dead were two state police officers, a judge, and a journalist. Uh, and with all of this going on, the state's political leaders, who sometimes operate by uh, some type of reflex action, decided that the proper response to this was to expand the use of the death penalty. And this was headed by our Democratic governor, Gene Shaheen, working in league with the Republican heads of the New Hampshire House and Senate. And they drafted legislation to expand the death penalty. Now, I was part of a group that then was formed uh, initially under the leadership of the New Hampshire Council of Churches to try to stop this bill from going through. And when it came up for a vote in the House of Representatives on March 12, 1998, an interesting thing happened. Because two young representatives decided that instead of simply using this as an opportunity to speak out against expansion of the death penalty, they were going to seize the opportunity and say, this is the time to get rid of it altogether. And I was sitting in the House gallery watching it. And I was watching when Representative Clifton Below, the son of a preacher uh, from Lebanon, New Hampshire, got up and told the story of a fellow named John Newton, who some of you might have heard of. He was the captain of a slave ship. He, by his own admission, was responsible for the violent deaths of dozens of people and was responsible for the captivity and enslavement of God knows how many others. A criminal by any account, by certainly by our standards now. But John Newton went through a conversion. He changed his mind, he changed his direction. He became a leader in the movement against the slave trade and he became a writer of hymns. And he wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet that sound that saved a wretch like me. And that if he could be changed even after doing these horrible acts, then so could anybody. And who are we as people or as a state to take away that opportunity from them? Now after Representative Bilo, up stood Representative Rennie Cushing. And in the gallery with me was Rennie's wife and their infant daughter, Grace. And Rennie got up and told the story of how 10 years earlier, a neighbor came knocking on the door of his parents' house on Winnicunnet Road in Hampton. And when his father answered the door, the neighbor pulled out a shotgun. And as Rennie says, turned his chest into hamburger and he died immediately. And Rennie told the story that taking away the life of this person who had taken away the life of his father was not going to do anything for him and his family. It was simply going to fill another coffin and leave another family bereft and missing their family member. And that there were other things 
that were needed by people, including his daughter, Amazing Grace. <laughs> now, what this did was it turned the debate on its head. Because prior to that moment, if you think about it, most people or most people in that room of legislators would have been under the impression that if you had lost your father or any of your loved ones to a violent homicide like that, that you would want to get the person who did it. And for Rennie to get up and say that there was another way to look at it turned the discussion around. And the bill to, the amendment to abolish the death penalty didn't go through, but the amendment to expand the death penalty was defeated by a very wide margin and went away. Now, for me, it did something else also, because I started to think about my own story. Because when I was 11 years old, on what would have been the first day of school after the New Year's Christmas break, my father came into my room before I was fully awake and sat on the edge of my bed and told me that during that night, a burglar had broken into my grandfather's hardware store and my grandfather surprised him and the burglar grabbed a claw hammer and hit him over the head and killed him. And I was 11 years old, so I mean, as I think about it now, looking back on that, what happened over the next few days or the next week or weeks is a bit of a blur. But these are the things that I remember. I remember Everybody in the Jewish tradition, there's a period they call Shiva, which for a period of seven days, people gather in the homes of the bereaved family. So I remember people coming to my grandmother's house and bringing blintzes and knishes and kogels, but, but also people talking about my grandfather and what a wonderful person he was and what he meant to the community, uh, which I certainly understood. And I remember people surrounding my grandmother with love. And what I realized looking back on this years later is I didn't remember people talking about the killer. I did remember that when a man was apprehended and accused and brought to trial and found guilty, that our family was relieved. And I remembered that it was extremely difficult for my grandmother who had to go to court to be a witness. But I remember what a relief it was when she didn't have to do that more than once. And I didn't really think about it that much Again, perhaps until 2010, when a lovely young woman named Molly Hawthorne McDougall was murdered in her home in Henniker, New Hampshire. And I had probably met Molly once when she was this big, because I knew her mom, her mom, Margaret Hawthorne. And I remember, and I went to the memorial service, and at the memorial service, Margaret got up and said, we will not succumb to fear, and we will not let this turn us toward a desire for revenge, that we are people who believe in love and we are not going to let the loss of Molly take that away from us. We are not going to allow the killer to turn us into something that we are not. And I talked to Margaret after the service and I told her a little bit about my grandfather. And I thought about the fact that what was it that enabled me, after going through a traumatic experience like that when I was only 11, to turn into a flaming peace activist <laughs> and a guy who supported abolishing the death penalty and support civil rights and human rights, and it had my family reacted in a different way, had my family gone down the path of desiring revenge, I'm sure that that would have had what I would now see as a poisoning effect on me in my formation, and that the choice my family took for whatever reason 
is one that enabled me to become a person who would end up being a leader of the movement to abolish the death penalty in New Hampshire, which I'm proud to be part of right now. So last Thursday, there I was in the gallery of the house with Margaret Hawthorne, and Rennie Cushing got up. He's now still a state representative. He's now the chair of the Criminal Justice and Public Safety Committee. His hair is way grayer than it was back then. And he talked about John Newton. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The people can change their minds, the people can turn their lives around. And he talked about his daughter, Amazing Grace, who just the previous week had graduated from college. And he talked about his father and how we should not allow killers to take away our values, even if they take away our loved ones. And that if we believe in respecting life and we believe in respecting others, then we've got to apply that across the board. And by a single vote, the governor's veto of the death penalty repeal bill was overturned. And as Pat says, on Thursday this week, it will come up in the Senate. And if 16 senators vote in favor of repeal, New Hampshire will be done with the death penalty. So that, maybe that's where the story ends, but maybe not. Because as I thought about it, and I thought about like, how do you sustain a campaign like that? If for me, it started in 1985, how do you keep that going? Who are the, and I think about the people like Rennie Cushing or Cliff Bilo or other people who are part of this struggle, Barbara Keshen and Marty Hunt and all these other folks. I think about the other people who've talked about their families. I think about Carol talking about her father losing, being murdered in his furniture store. And I think about Anne, whose husband was killed in a drive-by shooting where she was shot at as well. And I think of Bess, whose mom was raped and murdered when she was a little girl and they never caught the person who did it. And Bess is part of the movement to abolish the death penalty. And I think of all these people. I think of John Breckenridge, who was the police partner of Michael Briggs, the officer who was murdered in Manchester in 2006, and John Breckenridge, after this took place, thought about his own religious upbringing and his values and decided that he was going to support doing away with the death penalty. And I think about all of these things that have changed over this time. And I realize that for anybody to sustain a campaign like this, it's not just about that particular victory. It's about something, it's always about something that's bigger. And I think about Dr. King, who borrowed words from a 19th century Unitarian theologian. And at the end of the march from, Montgomery to, from Selma to Montgomery, he said, how long will it take? Not long, because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So where we are right now, where we hope to be on Thursday, is not at the end, but we are at a point on that arc of the moral universe, and it is bending towards justice, and we can all be part of making that bend take place. Thanks. Thank you, Arnie. Maybe some people in the Senate will listen to this story <laughs> and be rationally influenced. That'd be a beautiful thing.
that. Shall I take it from here? Did you oh, want to I, yes, I never um, reread the, the sequence. <laughs> if, if you are comfortable taking it from here, I'm just still resonating All right. with these stories. All right. Great. Yes. Thank you, Pat. And thank you to our three storytellers. Um, and although that was a recording of Arnie's previous uh, story, previous time on True Tales, he is here with us tonight. Um, so what we're going to do now is have a little bit of Q&A from you all. So you can use the chat. Put in your questions for Vicki and Arnie. Jezri could only stay for, for part of the show, so she can't answer questions. Um, after the, um, when we go to the interview part, we'll have more conversation with Arnie and also with Kathy Wolf. But first, let's do this, this Q&A piece. I'm gonna start looking for, for questions and uh, have a couple to start with. Yeah, very powerful night. This is always, and we always get feedback that our annual activism show is one of people's favorite. Um, I think I'm going to start with this question to both of you. I noticed that both of you had music, songs in your stories, which, you know, I guess kind of think of song as another way to tell a story often. Um, do either of you want to speak a little more to that and maybe tell us what your a couple favorite protest songs are? Arnie, you're unmuted, so I'm going to turn to you first. Amy, I'd say that what music does in social movements is it helps knit people together. We breathe in together, we breathe out together, we conspire. That's what conspire means, is to breathe together. So there's there's really nothing like it. It's certainly, I mean, people can chant and that gets some attention, but from my perspective, that sounds like noise. When people sing together, uh, we unite in spirit as well as in our voices and it builds it builds strength and it builds solidarity for whatever is the struggle we're going. So I, I was very happy to hear Vicki's story and I was singing along here in Canterbury. Vicki, do you wanna add anything? Um, yeah, I think Arnie, you said it. You said it very well. Um, oftentimes, too, protests are really long. The marches are long. The hours are long. I compressed that protest, that last one, but it went on for many hours actually before we actually <laughs> were arrested and everything. So, so it's kind of yeah, it's kind of something that brings the group together, uh, brings together our uh, our beliefs, our hopes, and sometimes humor. Um, I, I don't know, but after um, our last president, whose name I shall not say, <laughs> but after that person was elected, um, a, a lot of the protest songs were actually very funny, which I think was kind of our our way of surviving, you know something that we thought was so difficult was uh, making fun of the president's tiny hands and so forth. Um, it just, it kind of just helped us keep going. Thanks. Uh, Vicki, I'm gonna ask you a, a couple more questions here. In the, with Kathy and Sarah, want to know a little bit about what happened next. Um, what did the police do with you after the arrest? Um, how long were you in jail? Did someone bail you out? 
what were you charged with? Can you can you give us a little more of that? Sure. Um, going into it, I was so well organized. We had a lawyer uh, with us who um, had us all prepare in case we would have to actually spend time in jail, made sure that everyone would, could pay bail or that the group would supply that. Because there were so many of us and also because in Los Angeles, we have a very um, uh, sympathetic, well, I don't know if sympathetic is the right word, but we, we uh we have someone who's fairly sympathetic toward protests, which is Mike Foyer. And so um, we just were taken to the jail and booked and given fines and we were free to go. Um, but we had to prepare for whatever, um, you know, might transpire. And I know that years, some years back, we had a very tough uh, attorney here and you would he, he did not like protesters at all and he would do as much as he could. So it really depends on the environment in your city and also how I think we had a really big group and it would have been really a pain in the tush for them to put us all in. So it has a lot of factors, but you're always prepared. And when you have the legal advice, you know that you will be as safe as possible. Thanks. Um, yeah. The stories can go many different ways at that point. Very true. Vicki, you worked with Eve Ensler. Can you tell us anything about that, about her? That's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, gosh. Um, years ago, I lived in Manhattan and um, I was, and I still am a performer and actor. So um, I got involved in this one theater group and then I you know, by word of mouth. Back then we didn't have computers. We had flyers on telephone poles and word of mouth. And I found out about this peace group and Eve was the head of it. And um, she always was someone who really took initiative, uh, very take charge. And as you, you might know, she went on after that to write some um, very political plays that got a lot of attention. And the fact that they got that attention was because she was the, like she was head of our group and she took charge of those uh, scripts and got them uh, put, got them produced. So um, she's really uh, someone I admire, but, but like, yeah, she was just kind of one of us at the time. Amy, just throw in here that the campaign to stop nuclear weapons from being home ported in New York City was successful, as was a campaign at the same time to prevent nuclear weapons burying ships from being home ported in Boston, Massachusetts. And this had to do with activism and had to do with people figuring things out and making sure that this became aware, uh, that people became aware of this possibility and people rose up and said, we're not going to let that happen. But something inspires people to take action Something inspires people to educate themselves and educate others. And these are the things that bring about change. I just want to add to exactly what you're saying is that there are different types of activism and you need all of them. The person who goes and is willing perhaps to be arrested or does some kind of action that gets a newspaper, that's very important, especially reaching out to people who may be completely unfamiliar with the issue. But then there's the other people that Arnie was talking about, the people who are who activists behind the scenes every day trying to get leg legislation passed or trying to get people elected to office who will pass the legislation. And you need all of it. And I think that's partly why um, I think the Occupy movement, although it had its place, I think it, 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 it lost steam because there wasn't that other aspect. 
there weren't there wasn't a solid organization trying to craft some legislation. I think I think there are now at least in Los Angeles, and those people are getting things passed, ordinances, and so forth. But you need it all. Yeah, good point. Um, I know one thing Arnie taught me, having known Arnie a long time, is that. Um, it's never about one person, whether they're in the spotlight or not, that all change happens because people come together and do it together, most of whose names never, never get heard, um, but are all incredibly important. Let me ask Arnie, what, is there any, you know, we, we heard the follow up in terms of the repeal did go through. Do you have any other, like, in those days, after you told that story, do you want to tell us about other conversations or celebrations or feel, you know, can you say a little more about what that was like? I mean, it's, you know, when you, when you spend however many years that was go back, listen to the story, get the dates, do the math. It's a, it's a long time. So it's a, um, you know, and when it's, when it's that close, you really never know. There was a tremendous amount of pressure on the Republican legislators. Both of those bills had passed by very large margins in the house and in the Senate. And then after the governor vetoed it, we still needed a two-thirds majority in both chambers in order to override the veto. And there was a tremendous amount of political pressure being exerted on the Republicans who, um, to their credit, had been staunchly, many of them staunchly against the death penalty and had voted with us. So we had to do a lot of work to hang on to those votes. So um, that's about relationship building. Uh, and I mean, I think that for me, one of the big lessons on this is that we are always trying to leave the door open for people to do the right thing. It wasn't, we weren't seeking revenge ourselves against people that we thought voted the wrong way. We were uh, treating them as people who perhaps had not yet been convinced that the death penalty needed to be abolished and thinking about what is it going to take for that person to change their mind. And so part of the story of this is this campaign is a story about people changing their minds. And we don't have that many stories of political change that where we can actually document that that's what took place. That's great. You, you were living your message in a very, very real way. I think um, so. And, and again, yeah. it's important now for us to remember Rennie Cushing, who died just a couple of weeks ago and was our, our moral and political leader throughout this long fight. And Rennie was the model of that inside the legislature. Rennie could try to build common ground with anybody. And he did that successfully over time. And that's what enabled us to knit together a coalition that included progressive Democrats, of course, but it also included uh, right to life Catholics. It included extreme libertarians. Uh, it included people who were transformed by the stories they heard from murder victims, family members, and stories they heard from people who had been convicted of homicide and sentenced to death for crimes that they did not commit. So it had that transformative effect on people and made it possible for them to change their minds, to think about it differently. Okay, so um, we are reaching a, a pausing point in our show, but you don't go away because the conversation, Arnie, myself, and Kathy Wolf is going to join us, are going to talk a little more about, about the topic and also about Rennie. Cushing, who, as Arnie said, has recently died. So stay with us for that. But I have a little bit of information to give to you before we get to it. 
Um, first, I just want to thank everyone for being with us tonight, especially our tellers and our live audience. Please clap for yourselves and each other. As I said, we're soon to move on to our after story conversation segment, but I need to let you know that our next True Tales Zoom show is on Tuesday, April 26, 7 p.m. with the theme of Together and Apart, Pandemic Stories. Um, go to True Tales Live nh.org to find the link to register. We still have space open for tellers for that show and for most of our 2022 shows. The dates and themes are on our website. Um, April's show will definitely be on Zoom and we'll keep you posted about decision making after that. We also encourage those of you who are, who are interested in telling stories or thinking about it to attend one of our monthly Zoom workshops, usually on first Tuesdays from 7 to 8.30 p.m. The next one is on April 5th, uh, April 5th, April 5th. Contact us at info at truetaleslivenh.org to become a teller and find out more. Or again, go to truetaleslivenh.org for links to register for workshops. You can watch us on Portsmouth Public Media TV, Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m., Saturdays at 1 p.m., and anytime as video on demand or a podcast. If you go to our website, um, you can easily access all of these options. Let's give a little bit of thanks here to some of the folks that make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, David Frainer, Sarah Benningfield, Sam Adams, Kamisha Foley, Tom Osberg, Tina Charpentier, and I'm Amy Antonucci. And before we move to a conversation with Arnie Alpert, Kathy Wolf, and myself, please join us for one minute to shake off some, some Zoom, Zoom cobwebs or what have you. This is our Movement Fund True Tales dance party. This is something we've been having a great time with. It's our Zoom tradition. It lasts for one minute. So we hope that you will join us. Even if you just kind of nod like this, you might want to switch to gallery view to see each other. And John, take it away. Thank you, John. Oh, that feels better. Everyone got the blood moving again. All right, so next up, we are gonna have um, a little different, of uh, you know, our, our regular interview section. We're, we're kind of having a more round table conversation. It's gonna be with Arnie Alpert, Kathy Wolf, and myself. 
All three of us are True Tales live storytellers and New Hampshire activists and New Hampshire slash Maine activists. Um, Arnie and Kathy also worked with Rennie Cushing, um, who you heard about in Arnie's story. And you've already met Arnie, so let me introduce Kathy here. Kathy Wolf left a job as an Associated Press reporter in 1976 and became involved in the inception of the Clamshell Alliance, a group opposing the Seabrook Station nuclear power plant. It was a big shift in her life from reporter to activist. She worked with media for the Clamshell Alliance for three years. She says that since then her on-the-line political activism has lessened, but her political passion continues. And I will just say for myself that I've been involved in various types of activism since coming up to New Hampshire a few decades ago, amazingly, particularly taking up feminist, environmental, and peace issues. And that is how I met both Arnie and Kathy. And really glad to have you both here. Thanks for doing this. And I'm gonna open it with a simple question about how our stories and activism connected. Who would like to go first? Kathy, how about you? We haven't. Okay. Um, I think that stories uh, provide a foundation for activism uh, by giving a graphic picture of uh, giving something people can have empathy with or sympathy with or identity with. Because all good stories involve that involve some level of being able to identify with what's being said. I think Arnie had something to say on that too. Okay, Arnie. <laughs> I'd say, Amy, I would even back up a little bit and say that the best activism is itself uh, incorporates a story. Mm. If you think about the most, you know, the most powerful types of activism and we can talk about the occupations at Seabrook would be good examples of that. We could talk about the lunch counter sit-ins. You could talk about Rosa Parks on the bus or Gandhi on the salt marsh. Um, this, the activism themselves is a story. It, uh, as Daniel Hunter says, it's a moral parable. It lets people see what is justice and what is injustice, what is good and what is evil, and hopefully identify with the good part and identify with the justice part, not the other side. Um, I think that the story that Vicki told earlier about um, the incarceration of immigrants in this country and people finding a way to say no to that and using different types of expression, even if you didn't hear a word that those people said, even if they weren't carrying any signs, you got their story from the actions that they took. Uh, and that's what makes it accessible to a much wider range of people than simply passing out sheets of talking points. And the stories of those actions can, um, can weave a movement, um, bringing more people in. Clamshell, the story of Clamshell, the, the mass incarceration in, in uh, 77, really brought people into it, it intrigued people. The idea of being locked up for two weeks in National Guard armories, for some reason, was quite appealing to a lot of people across the country. Um, actually, it had already been appealing when, uh, when 180 people had uh, occupied the year before 
and it just kept growing story on story in a way. Um, Clamathology is part of what we called it. And I was one of those people, Kathy, I mean, because I heard those stories when I was a college student in Connecticut, and I heard about the 180 people getting arrested, and I saw a movie about Sam Lovejoy knocking over a weather tower at a nuclear plant construction site on the Connecticut River in Montague, Massachusetts. And then I heard about plans to have another occupation, and I said, okay, I want to be there. But it was those hearing about those stories but also, Amy, I would say the story doesn't live by itself for it to be effective. The story has to be nested in a strategy. And simply getting up on a soapbox or, frankly, on a Zoom screen and telling a story isn't by itself transformative. But if the telling of stories and learning about people's stories is part of a change strategy, it has a, can have a transformative effect on the people who are listening. Yeah, absolutely. There's many, story is one piece of the puzzle. Um, certainly not the whole thing. I know for me, doing a lot with education, at a certain point, I, I think I believed that I could change everyone's mind if I just got them the right facts, right information. And at a, another point, I realized that that wasn't enough. And for me, that's where story came in, that it seemed to be a way that reached people that where facts sometimes just didn't make, make it in. We've been talking about how stories can move people to action. Stories are also a way to remember those who have passed on before us. So I wonder if either of you have a story to share obviously not a 10 minute one, a short story of Rennie's activist work um, for you to, to put forward here. Who would like to? I thought I would just share this. This is a picture of a very young Rennie Cushing with my dog, Fred. <laughs> anyway, I came across it in a pile of things and um, he was an incredibly good storyteller because he had an awful lot of stories to tell. Fred or Rennie? Both of them, but Fred was sort of silent. That wasn't how I remember. I remember Fred. I don't remember the story part. Amy, the thing, my, as I was thinking about this, um, my first kind of connection to Rennie um, was a photograph of him, and he was marching off to the Seabrook New carrying a suitcase that said Seabrook or bust. So it was a very clever, again, the, the story was in the image. Um, it was clever and it, 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 made its, it made its point. I later got to know Randy when we worked together. Uh, turned out we were both uh, stockholders in Public Service Company of New Hampshire, which was the utility company primarily responsible for building the nuclear plant. So that meant that we could uh, go to the annual meeting of stockholders and try to tell a story about the dangers of nuclear power to people who had a financial stake in the thing. And that was also something that didn't have the, uh, perhaps did not have an immediate effect on the people in the listening audience. But I think over time, more and more people became skeptical about nuclear power from a financial perspective, not just from a safety perspective. Well, the two were obviously linked. If you are investing in something that in a matter of moments can turn into a steaming pile of radioactive rubble, uh, 
that might change your attitude toward where you're going to invest your dollars? Yeah, um, good point. Um, any other, Kathy, you, I know, had thought of some stories you were telling me about that brought Rennie to mind for you. Um, yeah, they aren't necessarily um, activist stories, but um, I took a trip down to Nashville with Rennie once a long time ago because my sister lived there and his brother lived there. And this was like 76 or seven, I don't know. Anyway, and we went through Oak Ridge, which is a nuclear town. Um, in fact, they have the, the sign of the atom on all of the street signs. And we plastered it with no new bumper stickers <laughs> our way down. So that's, I guess that's more an action. I guess that is an action. It's a story. Um, one of, and I, I mentioned these couple of stories at his memorial um, that one of my clearest memories, many memories of him, but the night before the 77 action, I was in a tent as were a lot of us. And this was the first time I was going to get arrested because I had always been, um, I wasn't so scared of losing out on a job or something if I got arrested in the past, but I was always scared that I would not be nonviolent. And that if a cop laid a hand on me, I'd punch him. So I had to get over that before um, I could let myself get arrested. Um, by 77, somehow hanging out with Quakers had happened, but I felt like I could probably not hit anyone. But I had a lot to work. I felt like we had the potential of saboteurs in 1977. We were worried about so many things. And I'm just in the tent like this, just really worried. And Reddy pops into the tent and he listens to me and he says, well, you know, what'll be, you'll be. You can't do anything about it now, Wolf. And, and he left. And I have a feeling he went from tent to tent to tent to tent um, that night of people he knew and just said, everything okay? Um, so like a camp counselor, which he also was in his life. Uh, camp Fatima, actually. Um, I was just thinking that well, there's another storyteller who's watching this, um, Andy Davis, who had a, a short story about how he met Rennie that I always thought was, that I thought was kind of interesting. And I'm wondering if Andy would like to just share it briefly. I, I wasn't necessarily thinking of telling that one, but I, I just okay, reflecting on yeah, reflecting on what the two of you were saying. Um, I mean, one of the when I first knew Rennie in the mid '80s, one of the things that really stood out to me about him, and of course, this is partly colored by how I've come to reflect on it and interpret it since then is that he had a sense of theater and creative mischief and like like you know seeing him in the courtroom put his feet up on the uh, on the desk in front of him in front of the judge and do things to deliberately provoke the judge but it was always in a sense of um, not disrespect for the sense of disrespect, but a way of seizing control and a way of redirecting energy. And uh, I, I think um, the question you were reflecting on before about um, where activism and story come together is, I, I think what we're always trying to do is to write a different story 
or reshape um, reshape the way people consider the facts of lives. And part of the way of do that uh, to do that is to shift the ground and um, in a variety of different ways, um, Rennie was so good at that, both in terms of building connections, but also in shaking things up and um, providing for a way to, um, for people to think of things differently. One thing I did say at the memorial service was that he, he had a way of making connections between disparate things about um, getting, getting people to see how, for example, one, uh, one of the things that Arnie and I and Rennie worked on together, the, the last time I saw Rennie, he apologized that he wasn't able to see this one through, is he, was, um, he introduced legislation to um, push for the exoneration of former World Fellowship Director Willard Uphouse, who, and the connection Arnie made, uh, uh, Rennie made, was between um, Goody Cole, a woman accused of witchcraft in Rennie's hometown of Hampton in the 1600s, and Willard Uphouse, who was targeted in an anti-communist witch hunt in the 1950s. And Rennie also had a way of connecting past and present and future. And like I remember, he was um, the he was the first one. Um, to get me to um, really look at the statue of, remind me, Arnie, the, uh, the Dover-based New Hampshire polit a senator anti-slavery. I'll think of it in a moment, Ian. Yeah, anyway, the statue in front of the, um, the State House, John, I'm blanking on his name, but, uh, but, Rennie said, "Look at that statue, and look at the look at the lineage that we're part of." And you know, I would go to the state house at that time. You know, when I was in my twenties, and not think that I had any connection with anything that people might have chosen to memorialize there. I think that one reason stories are important and it epitomizes it is because for activism and for organizing. It's not only the telling, and it's the listening. Like the introduction to True Tales Live is always said, you're given two ears and one mouth, use them accordingly. Um, because Rennie could really listen to people's stories mm -hmm. really well and remember them. He had a phenomenal memory. Um, I mean, he, he anyway, um, as well as having the everybody. But yeah, I think, Rennie, or Arnie, sorry. Amy. So anyway, but that's, I think that we need to then, Amy, talk about the importance of listening. We talk about, that's why people don't want, you know, you, in order for them to hear your story, in order for them to be willing to consider the facts on your fact sheet that you want to deliver to them, um, generally you have to be willing to show them respect, which you do by listening to them and listening to their stories. And I think, that's part of why Rennie was able to be such a coalition builder at the state house was because he was able to listen to people and understand what was important to them so that he could then relate, help them relate to whatever the issue was, whether it was mental health, whether it was marijuana legal, 
prosecution was ending the death penalty, uh, whether it was exoneration for, for Willard Uphouse. Rainey had the ability to help people see why that might matter to them. Yeah. If we just, yeah, again, get on our soapbox and yell at people, uh, tell them this is what you should think because I think this, we're not going to get very far. That's a great point. Yes. Yes. Very good. And a perfect note to, to wrap up here on. Um, yes, Kathy, good reference. Catherine Tucker Wyndham, you got two ears and one mouth and God expected you to use them in that proportion. So something to, to remind us all of. I'm going to be turning this back over to John. Let me just again uh, thank everyone, including Arnie, including Kathy, including Andy, for taking this time to be here tonight and have this conversation. Thanks to all of you for watching and listening. I'm Amy Antonucci. And um, for True Tales Live, we hope to see you in April. John, I'm going to turn it over to you to wrap up the show. <laughs>